Good morning. Well, yesterday the youth had a hike out in the Shenandoah Mountains, and unfortunately we made a, a wrong turn, and we went a little bit further than we intended. We went 11 miles. And so uh, if you want to talk with me at the picnic, you might have to sit at a table next to me. Uh, one of the children on the hike was concerned at the, at whether or not I'd be able to stand in the pulpit today. And uh, it's okay, I don't need a stool, uh, but if, if I fall over, don't worry about it, it's just the hike is getting to me. So uh, the, the illustration I wanted to start off with is uh, the summer before, my freshman year of high school, my family moved from Oregon to Texas. And I had seen thunder and lightning before, but I had never seen a Midwest thunderstorm. Uh, I watched, uh, we, we moved in the summer months, and the house that we moved into, it had, a, uh, it had a covered patio on the front, or a covered porch, I should say, a covered porch on the front of the house. And uh, so this storm, this like massive wall of billowing clouds was moving at us across the flat Texas landscape, and uh, as it drew near, I couldn't resist staying out on the front porch. Uh, the winds came, you could feel the temperature change. The rain started pouring heavier than I'd, anything I'd ever seen in Oregon. And what happened was the, the thunder and lightning got so close that lightning would flash nearby, and I wasn't able to count the seconds between seeing the lightning flash and hearing the thunder. And I remember the thunder shaking my chest. It was an unforgettable experience. And there are few events on earth like a storm uh, for just illustrating the raw power of God. In fact, in the Scriptures, you often find the authors of Scripture uh, illustrating the, uh, the power of our God with storms. Uh, Elihu does that in Job 37. Uh, I think David does that in an unforgettable way in Psalm 29. And of course, our Lord Jesus Christ calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee that would have killed the disciples. The boat was sinking. Uh, he did that in order to demonstrate His raw power over nature. He just spoke to the storm, and then it became uh, calm. And actually what ends up happening in the text, the biblical authors are clear about this. Jesus did this more than once. And uh, Mark in particular goes out of his way as a gospel writer to tell you that once the, th the storm uh, uh, was calmed, the disciples were more afraid of Jesus than they were of the storm. And not with a bad fear, like He was going to hurt them, but afraid of who is this person that the winds and the waves obey, the, obey Him. Uh, our God is a God of power. And it is the subject of power this morning uh, that is the focus of the end of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3. Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians 3 verse 14. Uh, for the last two weeks, we've studied what we can learn from Paul's example in this prayer. And we discovered four foundational principles for prayer from Paul's example. Uh, the first is to pray in response to what God has revealed. If you look at what motivated Paul to pray right here in his letter, this prayer comes on the heels of him talking about the wonder of what God had revealed to him as an apostle. Now, we're not apostles, so it, it's not going to come to us quite the same way it came to Paul. But I want to recommend using God's Word uh, to strengthen your soul, to, to focus on what God has revealed, and then based on what God has revealed, to respond to Him in prayer. Use the Bible as a tool uh, which can jumpstart your cold heart and uh, prime the pump of your prayers to the Lord. Pray in response to what God has revealed. Uh, the second foundational principle we learned is to pray humbly. Paul uses the expression, 
on my knees as a figure of speech for prayer. And of course, it's just a figure of speech. But even though it's a figure of speech, I believe it points to the necessity of bowing the knee in the heart to God and His rule and His authority when we pray. The third principle is to pray according to who God has revealed Himself to be. Now, in this passage, there are markers of who God is, His power, His love, His wisdom. I focused, uh, when we went through this previously, mostly just on the fact that Paul identifies God as Father. He is a good, good Father who hears us when we pray, and even though he often says no, even what's behind, the motive behind when he says no is our best long-term interest. He loves us, he has a plan for us, uh, and even when he says no, he has a good reason. Uh, The third principle then is to pray according to who God has revealed Himself to be. And then the fourth principle of effective prayer is to pray for spiritual growth. When you look at the specific requests that Paul makes, what you find is that the requests he asks of God for the Ephesians and even for himself aren't for changed circumstances. Now, to be balanced, right, to be fair, we often pray for changed circumstances. There's nothing wrong for praying for, with praying for provision and protection, healing, uh, for, for health. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, in the Bible, we often find godly men and women praying because of a crisis, praying for provision, praying for protection, praying for deliverance. In fact, we're even commanded by the Lord Jesus when He taught His disciples to pray. One of the things He told them to do was pray about your daily bread. We can come before God with the concerns of life. In fact, I would even go beyond that to say, knowing that God hears our prayers and responds to the prayers of His children, I think it would actually be uncompassionate of us not to pray for the physical healings of our loved ones. Uh, It's not wrong to pray about circumstances, but by far the most common requests that people in the Bible make, uh, the most common requests that you find the prophets and the apostles making are for spiritual healing and spiritual growth and spiritual advancement. Though we are commanded to pray for our daily bread, where there's actually uh, six requests that Jesus teaches us to pray for in the Lord's Prayer, and five, one of them is for our physical needs. The other five are about spiritual matters. They're all about spiritual issues. In fact, even the Apostle Paul himself, when he finally asks for prayer at the end of the letter of, uh, of Ephesians in chapter 6, when he finally asks for prayer for himself, I think it's instructive that he doesn't ask for prayers for his release from imprisonment. Instead, he says this, "'Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak.'" Though Paul was unjustly imprisoned, and awaiting an update on his legal status from the Roman authorities, his main request to the Ephesians was, pray that I would be bold, pray that I would speak up as I ought to speak up for the gospel, which means that Paul saw his own timidity with the gospel to be a bigger problem than his imprisonment. So, both in his prayers for the Ephesians and even in the requests he asked for himself, We find this priority in Paul's prayers for spiritual concerns and spiritual advancement. Specifically, we saw last week that Paul prays three things for the Ephesian believers. First, he prays that God would strengthen them with power by His Spirit in the inner person, the inner person of the heart. 
Second, he prays that they would be able to comprehend and truly know the love that Christ has for them. And then third, he prays that they would be filled up with all the fullness of God, which means they would share in the moral character of God. They would share in the, the communicable, attribute, communicable attributes that we can share with uh, God in, like becoming loving, becoming holy and set apart from sin, becoming more just, those things. That's what Paul is praying for for the Ephesians. And by offering these requests, Paul teaches us how to pray for others and for ourselves. Now, I don't want to neglect to remind you as we consider this prayer that it is in a strategic position in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, this prayer is actually the hinge on which the letter to the Ephesians hinges. Up to this point, Paul has written all doctrine. It's, it's all been doctrinal. It's all been about uh, uh, the promises and privileges we receive in Christ, and that lays a foundation then for the directions Paul is going to give us about practical Christian living in chapters 4 through 6, but he ends his chapters of doctrine with this prayer. And here's the thing to notice then about the prayer. The prayer is not just some kind of Godward-focused transition that Paul uses from doctrine into practice. The prayer actually shows us how we translate the doctrine we believe in into practice. Uh, that's what the prayer demonstrates. Uh, maybe I could say it this way. All of us struggle with a gap between the formal theology that we affirm and the functional theology we live out with our words and actions. Uh, we would all say that there are certain things that we value, but our choices and our words during the week often show that we don't value the things we claim to as Christians as much as we would like to think. And so, there is a gap, and every single one of us struggles with this. There's a gap between the theology we say we believe in and the theology we live. And how you close that gap, in part, is through prayer. You pray for the Lord to strengthen you so that you would live a more consistently obedient Christian life. Um, so, this is a crucial prayer request for us to learn from. Along with the Lord's Prayer, uh, it's a good model for our own prayers. It teaches us how to translate doctrine into practice, and uh, Paul demonstrates how we should pray for other believers. And this morning, uh, I want you to see him model one more thing about prayer. It is offering prayers of praise to God. Let's read the text together, starting in Ephesians 3, verse 14. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we do want to be strengthened with power through You in the inner person. Please help us to grasp what Paul has written so that the actual reality of what he's praying for can be ours by faith. Teach us to pray and to offer prayers of praise that are pleasing to the Father and Son. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to study the last two verses of Paul's prayer, 
and together they form a doxology. Now, that word doxology, uh, it descends from Greek straight into English. It's a compound word. Uh, it, it has two words, the word doxa, meaning glory, and the word logia, meaning a word or a saying. And so, a doxology is a word or a saying of glory. In the New Testament, it is a formal recitation of praise to God. So, a doxology is a, a word or saying of glory. Uh, that means we're ascribing glory to God. Now, in the Old Testament, you can find doxologies. Um, you usually find them at the end of hymns or psalms or prayers offered by Old Testament uh, prophets. Uh, the New Testament also contains a number of doxologies. Allow me to show you just a couple of New Testament doxologies. Turn over in your Bible to Romans 11. Romans 11, verse 33. This is a, a similar doxology to the one we're studying, not in content, but in terms of its location in one of Paul's letters. This doxology comes at the end of a prayer that is the hinge in Paul's letter to the Romans. Up to this point, Paul has spent 11 chapters rehearsing the gospel and doctrine, and then in chapters uh, in Romans 12 through 16, he's going to apply it to the affairs of daily living. And so, this prayer, it serves the same kind of purpose that the prayer in Ephesians that we're studying does. Uh, and, and this is what Paul prays in this context. He says uh, in his doxology of praise, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor, or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. The full wonder of God's gracious applied power is beyond human comprehension. It staggers even the most mature Christian like the Apostle Paul, and so you get this doxology. But my favorite doxology in the whole New Testament, it comes at the end of the book of Jude. Turn over to Jude for a moment. Uh, Jude only has one chapter, and, and so we're going to turn to verse 21 of Jude, and I would just remind you that Jude was a half-brother of our Lord Jesus, so he most likely grew up in the same home with Jesus. Uh, and it appears from the gospel accounts, I am making a little bit of an argument based on silence, but it appears from the gospel accounts that Jude didn't actually believe in his brother and follow his brother as the Son of God until after Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, but Jude was the half-brother of our Lord. And notice in verse 21, he gives a command. Uh, he says, keep yourself in the love of God. He gives it as a responsibility. You need to do what you do to keep, do what you need to do to keep yourself in the love of God, which I think in context would mean persevering in the faith until the end, not falling away and renouncing Christ, not falling away into apostasy. I think that's what he's saying. But notice that he gives us this command in verse 21, and now here's the doxology, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. So, think about that in light of the commandment. We are told to keep ourselves in the love of God, 
But then in the doxology, Jude tells us that God is like a guard over us, a loving Father, who helps keep us from stumbling into apostasy and falling away from the faith. And not only does He do that, He has this master plan that even though He is utterly holy and we are utterly unholy, He is going to so work in us through salvation and sanctification that one day we will stand in the presence of His glory, not being consumed by it by our sin, not being terrified by it because of how much it makes us aware that we're sinners, but we're going to be able to stand in the presence of His glory, blameless and with great joy. Uh, One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is uh, this scene in Luke chapter 12. Uh, Jesus is in the middle of of teaching, and a man interrupts… I I think it's an interruption. A man interrupts him uh, and says, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And Jesus, responding to the man, then uses it as a teachable moment to preach to the people against greed. So he corrects the brother uh, who, who it's, he has a greed where he wants to get his hands on it, but he can't, he can't get it. And then the second story, if you remember, is a parable about contented greed, where a man was rich uh, in earthly things, but he wasn't rich towards God, and so he was going to tear down his barns and build new ones and eat, drink, and be merry, right, uh, and take his ease. Uh, so he has this kind of contented greed where he's contented to have money and also content without a relationship with God, Jesus rebukes that. But the, the longest part of His instruction is given to people who live hand-to-mouth, and He's teaching them not to be anxious about how they're going to get by because they have a heavenly Father who cares for them. And at the very end of that instruction, He says this to the people listening. He says, "'Fear not, little flock, for the Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom.'" I love that. The fa- it's not just that the Father has chosen to give us the kingdom. He's chosen to give us, He's chosen gladly, happily to give us the kingdom. Uh, and so, uh, that's, a, that's a comfort that God takes joy in this. But I want you to notice in this doxology in Jude, whose joy is it? God makes us stand before the presence of His glory, blameless, with great joy. It's our joy. God is the one who makes us stand before Him in the presence of His holiness and His glory with great joy. I love that doxology. If, if God can take a sinner like me and eventually make me stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy, certainly He is worthy of all majesty and glory and dominion and honor and praise. So, throughout the Bible then, you have these doxologies in the New Testament and the Old Testament, these expressions of praise to God. And Paul concludes the doctrinal section of this letter by offering not only a prayer of spiritual growth for the Ephesians, but a prayer of praise to God. And that really adds a fifth foundational principle to our big outline, right? Our our outline is, you know, uh, pray according to what God has revealed, pray humbly, right? Uh, Pray according to who God has revealed Himself to be, pray for spiritual growth. But if I may add a, a fifth point, include praise in your prayers. Uh, We need to carve out time in our prayers, not just to make requests, not just to thank God for answered requests uh, uh, in the past, but also to carve out time to praise Him. And there are two ways that Paul models offering praise. The first is to offer praise that celebrates God's character. The second is to offer praise that ascribes glory to God. Let's look at 
offering praise that celebrates God's character first. Again, in verse 20, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. Paul begins with the attribute of God in praise that drove him to this prayer, and uh, the attribute of praise here is power. Now, earlier in the letter, Paul has praised God for His love, for His forgiveness, for His wisdom in His plan of redemption and His plan of the ages to glorify Christ, but now he praises God for His power. And uh, what he does is Paul… it's almost as if Paul heaps up words in order to build this monument to God's power, whereby he's, he's trying to find a way with human language to express how powerful God is. So, it's as if he builds word upon word, level upon level, and he makes this pyramid that's trying to show us how powerful our God is. Uh, notice, first uh, of all, the foundation Paul builds is this, now to him who is able. Now, able does not mean power in theory. It doesn't mean potential power. Here it denotes power to act. Our God has the power to act and to change things. This, by the way, is what distinguishes Him from the idols and the false gods, which is a point often made in the Old Testament. For, for example, in Jeremiah 51:15, we read this, "'It is Yahweh who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding He stretched out the heavens.'" When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he causes clouds to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes the lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Do you want evidence of the power of the God of Israel? Well, look around you. Look at what he has made. Look at what he has done in the world. But instead of seeing and responding to him, most people turn away from that truth. Jeremiah 51:17 then goes on to say this, all mankind is devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of mockery. In the time of their punishment they will perish. The portion of Jacob is not like these, for the maker of all is he. Yahweh says, in essence, here's the difference between me and the idols. Look at what I do. I have power to act. They don't do anything. They make no prophecies about the future. They don't change anything. They don't act. But look at what I've done in creation and in nature. And Paul is making the same point here about our God having the power to act in this doxology. Uh, now to him who is able. He is able to act. He has the power to do things. The second level of the pyramid, if you will, is this. Not only does God have the power to act, He has the power to do what we ask. Now to Him who is able to do all that we ask. In other words, there is no request we can make of God that He doesn't have the power to perform. This is so important in light of the requests that Paul made for the Ephesians. Remember, he's just asked God to strengthen them in their inner character through the Holy Spirit. He's asked uh, God to help the Ephesians comprehend and know the great love of Jesus, and to be filled up with all the fullness of God's moral character. Now, when you look at those requests, okay, granted, maybe the first one about being strengthened in the inner man, maybe that doesn't seem like a huge request for God to act on, but remaking sinful people so that they share in the exact moral image of God and become set apart from evil, when you consider the hardness of the human heart, 
and the stubbornness of human behavior. That actually is a huge request that God would transform people's hearts. But God has the power to do that. He has the power to do what we ask when we ask for Him to work in our hearts and in the hearts of our loved ones. And not only is God able to do all that we ask, He's also able to do all that we can imagine. That's the third level. Now, to Him who is able to do all that we ask or think. So, even a request, imagine it this way. If I had a request in my mind and I told myself, ah, that's just too much, that's too big for God, well, that would be terrible theology on my part, right? That would be bad theology. But even if I thought that and didn't ask for, didn't pray that request, God is still able to deliver on that request because He can, he can do anything. He can do beyond even what I can imagine or think. Uh, he has the power to do beyond all of that. And then the fourth level is this. God has the power to do beyond all that we can ask or think. So, when I quoted Paul earlier, you noticed as I keep quoting him, I keep leaving words out. And that's because I think Paul is building a, a, a pyramid here. Uh, notice he says he is able, God is able to do beyond all that we ask or think. Uh, beyond is the Greek word huper. It comes to us in English as hyper, meaning above or beyond, right? So, hypersonic, hyperactive, right? So, hyper. Now, so, then this is what Paul is saying. God isn't just powerful, He's hyper powerful. He's hyper-powerful to do even beyond the things that we could think about or imagine. God is not only able to answer our requests, but He is able to over-deliver on them in such a way that it exposes that we think small and He thinks much bigger than us. Let me give you an example from Scripture. Do you remember Abraham? When Abraham was in his old age, what was his request? God, can I please have a son? Now, when you think about when he was asking that, that was a huge request because Abraham, and more importantly, his wife Sarah, were past the age of childbearing. Like that had, those days had passed a long time ago, and he's making this request. It's actually a very audacious request. But what does God do? How does God answer? He doesn't just give Abraham a son. And he doesn't just make Abraham the father of a great, numerous nation. He makes Abraham the father of many nations, right? Uh, uh, Genesis prophesies that Abraham will become, God prophesies himself in Genesis, that Abraham will become the father of many nations, and his descendants will be more numerous than the sands of the seashore and more numerous than the stars in the sky, the night sky that we keep looking out into with telescopes and finding more and more galaxies and stars, uh, they'll be more numerous than that. And we can say 4,000 years after that prophecy in 2023 that God delivered on that prophecy. Indeed, Abraham's descendants have become many great and numerous nations and uh, more people than can be counted. So, God is hyper-powerful. That's what we mean by beyond. God is hyper-powerful powerful. He is able to do beyond all that we ask or think. But that's not all. The pinnacle of Paul's praise is this. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. The Greek word we translate abundantly means exceedingly, or you can also translate it as infinitely. And that's what I like. That's the word I like, infinitely. God is not just hyper-powerful. He is 
infinitely more powerful than being hyper-powerful. That's what Paul's saying. There's no limit to His power. There's no limit to the capacity of God to do whatever He chooses, which is the consistent teaching of Scripture. God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And notice Paul's description of how God uses this power. He uses it according to the power that works within us. So, this is the same power, the same power that created the world, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. We saw this, uh, Paul makes this point back in Ephesians 1. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the very power God is using in you to transform you. William Hendrickson writes this about the phrase, within us. The apostle immediately adds that he's not dealing with abstractions. The omnipotence which God reveals in answering prayer is not a figment of the imagination, but it is in line with or according to that mighty operation of His power that's already at work within us. As a Christian, you've experienced this power. Think about how God's power has already worked in you. Before you came to Christ, the gospel sounded like foolishness to you, or it didn't sound like good news, it sounded like bad news to be avoided. Um, I had this happen a few years ago. Um, I, was, I was witnessing to a man, and I asked him to… it, it was weird, I had, a, I had kind of a counseling relationship with him, and, and I asked him to read… Um, I asked him to read the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew, Matthew, chapters, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. I love the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so I gave him the Sermon on the Mount, and he, it, it didn't have the effect that I intended. I thought that he would see who Jesus is and the glory of what Jesus teaches. Um, I, I thought that it would be… because I just think the Sermon on the Mount is beautiful. He came back even more convinced he did not want to be a Christian, and the reason is because he understood the full force of what Jesus was saying. So, in a way, the reading assignment worked but it didn't work the way I wanted. I was hoping He would, he would see the, the beauty of Christ. And that's what it was like before you came to Christ. What Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount terrified you. You didn't, you didn't want to bow the knee to Him as king. It's obvious He's claiming to be a king. Uh, but what happened? God used His power to work in you. Maybe He put Christians in your life. Maybe He exposed you in some way to His words and to the truth of uh, what, he, what He has done in the world. And, and He used His Holy Spirit to draw you towards Him in faith. Jesus talks about this in John 6, that God uses the Holy Spirit to draw people to faith and repentance. And then, when you placed your faith in Christ, when you repented of your sins, what happened? God gave you a new heart. He put His Holy Spirit within you. He's already demonstrated His power towards you in salvation, and you can count on Him continuing to use His power in you in sanctification. So, the application for us then, brothers and sisters, is to pray in such a way that we not only pray for the spiritual advancement of ourselves and our loved ones, but also that we offer up praises to God, praises for His power, His love, His grace, a praise that is according to His character. Uh, there's nothing too difficult for God. He is infinitely more powerful to do beyond what, all, what we could imagine or think. And then the second major way Paul models offering praise to God is uh, to ascribe glory to God. That's what he does in verse 21. Uh, look again at verse 21. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
Now, when I sum up verse 21 with the English word ascribe, that's like an old English word that a pastor who preaches in a tie would use. You know, ascribe. Who says it? But by ascribe, here's what I'm trying to do an end around. I'm not trying to say give glory to God, because in English that could imply that we're adding glory to Him, and you guys know that's not the case. But by using an old English word, ascribe, that most people probably couldn't define, what I mean is that we are recognizing, we are acknowledging the glory that is already there. We're not adding to it, but we're acknowledging that God is glorious, He's always been glorious, and we're offering up prayers of adoration and praise and worship and, and giving Him the honor He deserves. In fact, the sense of verse 21 is not Paul saying, may God receive glory. It's basically saying God, uh, glory rightly belongs already to God. He is glorious. He's always been glorious. Now, that raises a big question. How does God most receive glory in the world? today. Well, Paul identifies two ways that God receives glory in the world today. He actually did this back in chapter 3 in verses 9 and 10. He pointed out two things, and he points out the very same thing now, very same things now in verse 21. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. So, in the present age, in the present age of redemptive history, the way that God most gets glory is through the, ch the true church acting like the true church, and through the Lord Jesus Christ creating followers of Himself that obey Him and, and make Him look good in the world. So, if you're a Christian, you want to glorify God, and the implication of Paul's words is that you can best glorify Him by being a consistent follower of Jesus and helping Jesus build the church that He said He would build. And this is where we, we need to make an important, a very, very, very important uh, qualification, uh, 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 maybe say an important clarification about the gospel. This is very important. The gospel is not just a set of, uh, of historical statements about a crucified and risen Jesus that you believe in. The gospel is about a cru crucified and risen person that you follow. The gospel is about following someone, not just saying that you believe what the Bible claims Jesus did, right? You, you have to follow Jesus. Uh, he's a person you follow. So, you bring glory to God by following Jesus. And in verse 21, you also bring glory to God by uh, participating in the local church, by, by endeavoring, right? We're all sinners. We're all imperfect. At times, we all display poor judgment, including pastors and elders. Uh, but you want to attempt to be more of a blessing than a burden, more of a help than a hindrance, more of an encouragement than a discouragement to a local church somewhere, to a church family where you have brothers and sisters in Christ, and you know and are known, you love and are loved. That's the other piece of this. But notice the last thing about Paul's prayer of praise. Not only does it give us a hint there about how we can glorify God best in our lives, at the very end of verse 21, he ends with the word, amen. Now, many doxologies in the Old Testament end with the Hebrew word, amen, which descends into Greek and then English as amen. And the word is used uh, 129 times in the Greek New Testament, and 99 of those times it's translated this way, truly, truly, I say to you, right? So, what that means about this word amen then, it, amen is not just like 
a verbal period that we use uh, that sounds religious, right? It, what, what's going on is this. The Hebrew community, when there was a public speaker, and then the, the people listening said, amen, what they meant is they meant, yes, that's true. They, they, they were saying, that is true, uh, that is a sure thing, uh, that is true testimony that this person is giving. They were also giving their affirmation, yes, let it be so, I, that's, I want to see that happen. They were embracing the truth that was taught. Uh, I agree, let it be true, let it be so. And, uh, okay, let's be honest here. We're not much of an amening church, but that's what we're supposed to mean when we say amen, right? And, and even in like, let's say, I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on anyone. Please don't take this the wrong. Please don't put this on Twitter. Like, please. Uh, even in a Southern Baptist church where we, we might start to wonder if the people who are amening know what amen means, most of the time, that's, they mean the right thing. They're saying, amen, that's true. Let it be so. I agree. That's the idea of amen. And what I'm going to do at the end, even though we're not an amening church, we're going to end with a benediction today. We're going to end the service with a, bit, uh, a benediction. Um, it's a doxology that I'm going to give as a benediction. And at the very end, I'll say all God's people said, and you can say amen if you feel so led. Okay, so we're, we're going to practice amening today at the very end of the service, even though we're not an, an amening congregation. Uh, so how should we respond then to this wonderful doxology of Paul? What, what are some applications for us? Because here's the thing. It, let me go back again to first things. As I try my best to honor God by being a pastor here at Grace and preaching God's Word, I really have two major goals in all my preaching. I do want to teach you about the text. I would like it if you learned something new about the text of Scripture, and not because I was being cute or creative or artsy, but like actually learning new things about the content of Scripture. But then I don't want it to just be a historical lecture or, or a literary lecture about the text. This should actually change us. We, we want this to change us and transform us. So what are some applications we could take away from this doxology? Well, I have three things. First, remember, just based off of Paul's example here, remember to include praise to God in your prayers. I will confess I tend to pray that there's four categories I think in. Uh, I like to uh, regularly spend time when I have a, a formal time set aside for prayer. I like to start with confession. It just feels weird to go in with praise when I might need to get right with God first. So I start off with confession. Um, I try to include thanksgiving. Perhaps the easiest thing for me are requests. That's one of the reasons I'm there. I'm concerned about a lot of stuff. I have an agenda about how I would like to change and how I'd like to see a few of the people around me change, and so I have a lot of requests, right? Uh, but one thing that often falls through the cracks with me is praise, and one thing that helps it, the difference between thanksgiving and praise is that thanksgiving often has to do with what God has done for us. Uh, what God has done in, that in some way connects to me and my life and my loved ones. Praise is simply uh, giving Him worship and ascribing glory to Him based on who He is, based on His character, uh, based on His mighty acts that may not directly impact me. That's praise. Um, and I think that we do a great job of offering requests to God. Uh, I think as a church, even though we would all say, 
we feel guilty, we probably don't thank God as much as we ought to. In our corporate prayers, I hear a lot of thanksgiving when I'm in a prayer meeting at Grace Fellowship. We do a good job thanking Him, but it's easy to leave praise out. And if you find that you struggle with praise, one thing I would recommend is start by reading Scripture and just pray back what you're seeing about who God is in that passage, or you could go to a psalm. See how one of the psalmists is praising God and take the things the psalmist praises God uh, the psalmist praises God for, and make those your own. So, remember in your prayers to include praise. Second, make audacious requests to God to transform you and the ones you love. That's what Paul does here. He prays, in effect, for the Ephesians to grow up into Christ-likeness, and then in the doxology, he reminds us that no request is too big for God, including our request for God to save hard-hearted, uh, stubborn sinners. And that, and even that request is not too much. He has the power to radically change your character and your heart and the hearts of those you love. So, pray for it. God is able to do it. And then third, determine to glorify God by the way you practically follow Jesus and participate in the church. Last week, I read uh, 2 Corinthians 14 and 15, where Paul says, the love of Christ controls us having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. So, if you take what Paul's saying there, determine this. Determine not to live your life just for yourself. Determine not to live your life uh, just for your own, uh, what you can enjoy, for your own comfort, uh, for your own prosperity, but for Christ. Hear His words, act on them, follow His example, obey His commands, and then uh, participate also in a helpful way in a local church. Uh, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus… Now, okay, let me just preface this. What I'm about to say, I know I am preaching to the choir, but, I, but there's a reason for it, okay? Uh, if you're going to follow Jesus, then you have to study what He taught. And if you study what He taught by reading the New Testament, one of the things you'll discover pretty quickly is that to say that you're a follower of Jesus and then to live in some kind of churchless Christianity is just to play mind games. You're just kidding. You're, the only person you're fooling is yourself. Christ died for the church. He loves the church, and He wants all who follow Him to participate in the church. Now, you already do that, right? I'm looking across the room. I don't see a lot of visitors today. You, like, you guys are all like, members, regular attenders of this church. You're doing a, a wonderful job. I'm very thankful not only for the, the generosity of this church, but the way you guys are generous with your time and, and serve in so many, so many ministries. But the reason I'm, I'm saying this again is just for our mindset. It's just to, to remember in our mindset, as we think about wisely loving the people around us, to pray for those in our extended families, to pray for our friends, to pray for our neighbors who claim to follow Jesus but just don't have a church home and haven't for like a decade, right? Those people need to get involved. That is not a safe way. That's not a wise way to live the Christian life because when you live, try to live the Christian life outside of a church, you put yourself outside of the circle of blessing and protection of accountability, even just informal, informal accountability and encouragement that every single Christian needs. Uh, one of the things I do as a, as a biblical counselor with ACBC is my name is up on the web. Uh, you can find my name through their website 
And sometimes uh, I counsel people in our community who aren't connected to our church or even long distance over the phone. And sometimes uh, I counsel people who would say they're Christians, they don't have a church home, and I'm happy to help them with the problem they have. I'm happy to give them counsel. But one of the things that's high on my list is getting them involved in a local church so that they are in a context of care. Uh, Just talking to me and doing counseling with me can't be the magic hour of the week. They need care uh, that brothers and sisters provide. And so it's, and, and I'll just share this with you without giving any specific illustrations. I've had some wonderful counseling victories where the main way the person was helped was not so much by the direct counsel I gave about their problem, but because I was able to convince them to get into a local church. And then the care they received in that local church helped fix a lot of what was going on in their lives. And so we want to, just as having a mindset for ourselves and for everyone we love and for everyone we pray for, to be meaningfully involved in the local church. Serve in the church and exalt Christ. In our lifetimes, those are the two stages on which God is most putting His glory on display. And not just in our lifetimes, not just in the generation of our our children's generation or our grandchildren's generation or our great-grandchildren's generation, but verse 21, to all generations forever and ever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise You for Your wisdom, which found a way to reconcile rebels to You and allow sinners into heaven without compromising Your justice. We praise You for Your power in salvation, taking out hearts of stone and giving us new hearts, putting Your Spirit within us and, and, and causing us to turn from our own way to walk in Your statutes. We celebrate Your power, love, and grace. Please strengthen every one of us in the inner person of the heart. Help us to comprehend and know the love of Christ for us, and fill us up to the stature of Your moral character and holiness, we pray. Give us the grace to truly become a people of prayer here at Grace Fellowship Church. Teach us to pray properly for Your kingdom to come and Your will to be done in our lives and in our church. Guide us in more consistently praising You and returning thanks in the prayers we offer. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.